Shalom. This is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. We thank you for this Shabbat, this opportunity to gather together as Mishpacha, as family, to worship before you and to enter in to your Holy of Holies. Father, I pray that you will move in our hearts and our lives today, that as we open up your word, that you will speak forth boldly and loudly into our lives and awaken us to the realities of your truth and your salvation. Father, I pray that you use me as a vessel for you, that it be your word spoken, your heart felt, and most importantly, your presence known in our midst today. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu, the name Yeshua Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen. Uh, this week we're in Parsha Zav, which begins with Leviticus chapter 6, verse 1, verse 8, if you're using a traditional English translation like the NIV, KJV, something along those lines. Um, if you go ahead and open up to Leviticus chapter 6, verse 1, verse 8, if you're in one of those boring translations. Uh, the <laughs> Verse 1 says, Adonai spoke to Moses saying, Command Aaron and his son saying, This is the Torah of the burnt offering. The burnt offering should remain on the hearth atop the altar all night until morning, while the fire of the altar is kept burning on it. The Kohen is to put on his linen garment with his linen undergarments on his body. He is to remove the fat ashes from where the fire has consumed the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he is to take off his garments, put on other ones, and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place." This is continuing the discussion in last week's Parsha in discussing the types of sacrifices and offerings that would be made in the tabernacle and ultimately the temple. And as we look through this, what we realize is that the Lord is, is describing and defining the functionality of the priesthood and how they're to operate, how they're to do everything that they're supposed to do in order to have them in the right place mentally and spiritually to be able to be consecrated, which occurs in this Parsha towards the end of the Parsha. So the Lord is setting up the guidelines for the priesthood to follow so that when they are consecrated, when they are anointed for the priestly work, they are able to immediately begin that work and to begin uh, serving Israel as the Kohanim, as the priests serving in the tabernacle and the temple, performing sacrifices and atonement and so on. Now, as we look at this, what we realize is that there's a lot of procedure that goes into it. And so the, the Levi'im, the, or particularly the, the Kohanim, the Aaronic order has a lot that they have to remember to do on a regular basis as they move through their day-to-day life because you've got sacrifices that have to be made on a regular day. Uh, in the morning, in the evening, afternoon, there's all sorts of things that are going on uh, as you move through to the high holy days and Pesach and Shavuot and so on. There's all sorts of extra sacrifices that have to be done for those on top of the daily. And then beyond that, it goes even farther because every day you're going to have different people from the nation of Israel that are going to be bringing other offerings and sacrifices and atonement sacrifices and so on that have to be done. So you've got a slew of things that have to be done. You've got a lot of animals that have to be slaughtered. You have blood splattering everywhere. You have guts and insides all over the place. It's just really a nasty job which is really weird that the Lord wants them to wear white when they're doing it. I always thought that was kind of odd. But nonetheless, it's just a really nasty job that they've got to do. They're always digging into something disgusting. Now, what's interesting is, as we look at the tabernacle, the, uh, the, the sages tell us that 
One of the unique things to the tabernacle was the miraculous way in which things occurred in the tabernacle. Not in the sense of like people getting healed and so on, but in the way that, that for whatever reason, and, and we know it was a divine uh, uh, action if it were true, for whatever reason, there were really weird things that occurred like uh, you know, these, these meats that have to be roasted on the altar, the fats and such that have to be roasted on the altar, they never went bad. They never spoiled before they were able to be burned. Uh, even though there was blood and, and all this nasty stuff all over the place, there were never flies in the tabernacle. Um, it talks about how the, uh, the, as everything was going on in the tabernacle, the sages say that uh, there was never this foul odor that came from, uh, from it. There was never any sort of, uh, of illness involved with uh, the, the blood and such that was all over the place. Um, and, and that aside from that, there, the, the tabernacle, even with all of this going on, the tabernacle was never filthy. You know, you would think you're, you know, splattering blood. I mean, you're sprinkling blood on the altar. You're sprinkling blood on this and you're splattering it on that and you're doing this and that. You would think that there would be just gunk all over the place. But the sages tell us it was never the case that the tabernacle was always clean. It was always uh, set aside holy and righteous before the Lord. Now, I want to jump into this in verse 5. It says, The fire on the altar is to be kept burning on it. It must not go out. Each morning the Kohen is to burn wood on it, laying the burnt offering in order upon it, and burning up as smoke the fat of the fellowship offerings. Fire is to be kept burning on the altar continually. It must not go out. This is interesting because Israel, the, the tabernacle, the whole point of the tabernacle, especially of 40 years in the wilderness, was what? That it was portable, right? You could pack it up and haul it off to wherever the next place is the Lord's taking you. But it says that the fire on the altar is to never go out. The sages tell us that when Israel would carry the, 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 ark, or the altar around, that they actually took a copper bowl and put it over top of the, uh, the altar so that the fire wouldn't be put out when they put the covering on it to carry it so that the wind wouldn't blow it out as they were carrying it. But they always had a fire stoked and going no matter what in this ark. Now, you may be wondering, why in the world does it matter if the fire goes out? Could you not just start a new one the next morning? Uh, I mean, how many of the room barbecue? It really doesn't take that long to get a fire going to cook something, right? So why is it that it has to be going all the time? Why is it that the priest, I mean, that's a lot of work. Think about it. Every morning, one of the priests has to go in and put fresh wood on and, and move stuff around and clean the ashes out and make sure that that fire never goes out. So first thing in the morning, the first thing they have to do is to make sure that fire is going. It's going all night long and it's constantly burning. It's interesting to see the, the actual reason that, that this fire is to never go out is if you go forward to Leviticus chapter 9. Leviticus chapter 9, verse 23, by the way, we're skipping forward to next week's Parsha for a moment, uh, so don't, don't tell anybody that we cheated. Um, Leviticus 9, verse 23 says, Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came back and blessed the people, the glory of Adonai appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of Adonai and devoured the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So why is it the fire is to never go out? Because it's divine fire. It's fire that was started by God. It is a divine ash, a divine fire. And so as this fire comes out, I mean, think about it. We go to the, the actual building of the tabernacle, the end of Exodus. We see when they finished building the tabernacle and they put everything together, what was one of the first things that happened? The Shekhinah, the divine glory of the Lord, fell upon the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, right? And the, the Shekhinah, the divine glory of God, was seen as what? 
a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke, right? As they look at this, they see this cloud sitting there and the fire sitting there on the, the, the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, and they can see it because the, the, the Holy of Holies is open for the, the presence of the Lord to be there. But what we realize is that as they uh, anoint the Kohanim, this is right after they anoint and consecrate the Kohanim, the priesthood, right? They go through a seven-day process that's described in Parshat Zab. There's a seven-day process in which they're anointed, and part of that process is, part of the anointing process is, they, they have certain sacrifices that have to be made on behalf of the priests, and Moses takes the oil, uh, the anointing oil of the tabernacle, and he puts it on their right earlobe and their right thumbnail and their right toenail, and he comes back again with the blood from one of the sacrifices. He puts it on the right earlobe and the right thumbnail and the right toe, and he sprinkles some of the blood on the altar, and he sprinkles some of the blood on the, the priestly garments as a part of the consecration and the anointing, and this whole procedure goes on, and it's seven days long, and they do this every single day. For seven days, consecrating the priesthood. And then immediately afterwards, that was the final functionality. It was the final piece needed for the, the actual function of the tabernacle. And as soon as that happened, and they finished everything, and the ark was ready to go, uh, or rather the altar was ready to go, and the priesthood was ready to go to, to make sure that the fire continued burning every day, to make sure that the sacrifices were made, to make sure that the atonement for Israel was made, to make sure everything was in order, then fire came forth, divine ash, divine fire came forth from the presence of the Lord, came out of the Holy of Holies. The presence of the Lord is in the Holy of Holies. It's on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. This fire came out of the Holy of Holies, and it ignited the fire on the Ark, and it burned up the, the sacrifice on the, I'm sorry, on the altar. It burned up the sacrifice on the altar, and that is the fire that was began, and that is the fire that must continually burn, that must continually be uh, uh, kept ablaze to make sure that it never goes out. As we go back to this week's Parsha, verse 5 of chapter 6 says, The fire on the altar is to be kept burning on it. It must not go out. Each morning the Kohen is to burn wood on it, laying the burnt offering in order upon it and burning up as smoke the fat of the fellowship offerings. Fire is to be kept burning on the altar con uh, continually. It must not go out. In order to keep a fire going, there's work that has to be done, right? You have to add wood to it. You have to make sure that it's, uh, it's got airflow. You have to make sure that... So this is... It's, it's a tedious process. Every single day, the priest has to go in and make sure that this process is being fulfilled to make sure that this fire doesn't go out because the truth of the matter is, is who wants the fire of the Lord to go out in our lives, right? This is the fire of the Lord on the altar all of the sacrifices that are made in the tabernacle and in the future, the temple, all the sacrifices that are made are made with this fire. So when the Lord talks about how all of these offerings, the carcasses as they're burned and the fat as it's burned, it's a holy incense before him. It's a pleasing aroma before him. And we sit here and think, but that just sounds awful, right? Uh, I've said it before. I can't imagine how a burning cow is going to smell good. I, I just don't see that. I mean, when you cut a steak up, you throw some, some seasoning on it, and you throw that on the grill, that's got an okay smell. But the carcass with all the, like, how is the fat and everything, that cannot possibly smell good. But yet, this is what the Lord says is a pleasing aroma. Why? Because it's not just an ordinary fire. It's not just any fire. This is the divine fire of the Lord that takes part in the sacrifice. So not only does the priesthood offer the sacrifice, but the Lord is taking part in it, right? He started that fire. That fire that's continually going, that never ends, that's his fire. That's the fire that came forth from the presence of the Lord. So he takes equal part in the sacrifice, as does the priesthood. Now, if we go forward to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, 
uh, Paul is, is, is speaking here and he says, I urge you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So now Paul is taking this idea, you know, the, the priest made uh, sacrifice before the Lord. Part of that sacrifice involved the presence of the Lord in that fire, that divine fire uh, for that sacrifice to be made. And here Paul takes it to another step. Paul says, look, your lives are a sacrifice. The priests, in order to keep that fire going, had to make sacrifice. Every morning they had to go in and they had to uh, add wood to it and they had to clean out the ashes and they had to add more fat uh, and they had to do all this thing to keep that fire going to make sure that it was constantly going. Well, we're now part of that sacrifice. We are to be a living sacrifice, Paul says. And so it's now important that we, as believers, take as much care and effort to keep that fire going. What fire is it? It's now the fire of the Lord that's no longer just upon an altar. It's not just some fire are waiting for meat to be thrown on it uh, on an altar in the tabernacle of the temple, but instead it's a fire that should dwell within us. It's a fire that should live within us. It's something that should be a very part, the very part, the core of who we are at every moment of every day of our lives. We go to uh, First Timothy, uh, Second Timothy. I'm sorry, uh, verse chapter one, verse six. It says, "For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but a power and love of power and love and self-discipline." Look, when the priest was going to that altar every morning to keep that fire going, do you think he was afraid of that fire? Do you think he was timid of it? Do you think he was scared to go near it? No, he went in to do what he was supposed to do to keep that fire going. Paul tells Timothy, uh, or tells those reading the, t the letter to Timothy, which is a pastoral letter, he tells them, look, fan that flame, stoke it, don't let that fire go out. Let that fire within you, which is the Spirit of the Lord, to continue to billow within you, to continue to burn and to rage, because the fire of the Lord is what? It is all-consuming. It consumed the sacrifices on the altar. It should consume our lives so that our lives become a living sacrifice that affect others. Now, as believers, a lot of times I think we lose focus on the reality of what it means to keep that fire going, on the reality of the amount of effort and time that goes into it. And we like to throw around the term discipleship. We like to use it, uh, I think a lot of times we use it a little too lightly. Um, you know, interestingly enough, uh, in the Brachadasha, in the New Covenant writings, in the Greek, um, the, the, the concept of discipleship and the sense of like uh, uh, an adjective or a, a noun uh, of the, the, the fact of discipleship, it doesn't exist. The word disciple, however, in the Greek is a verb, all right? It's an action. It's something that we take. So we are to become disciples and we're to help others become disciples. I think a lot of times we look at the idea of discipleship as though there are tiers of faith. There are new believers, and, and they're you know, on phase one, step one, level one, and then there are those of us who are disciples, and we're a little better than them, right? We're, we're holier, and we're righteous, and, and we're in phase two, and then there are those that make disciples, and they're phase three. The problem with that is that the Great Commission says, go and make disciples of all nations. So there is no phasing. We're all to make disciples, well, how do you make disciples? Well, first you have to be a disciple to make a disciple, right? 
You can't encourage others to be disciples of the Lord. You can't encourage others to become priests as uh, uh, 1 Peter 2.9 describes, as Exodus 19 describes. We can't encourage others to become priests, disciples of the Lord, if we are not first a disciple to live an example before them. If we are not first walking in a life that honors the Lord, that in, uh, encourages others to want to honor the Lord. But what does it look like to be a disciple? A lot of times we get watered-down versions of this. Matter of fact, I, I like to ask believers, what does it mean to live a believing life? What does it mean to be a Christian? How do you live the Christian life, quote-unquote? Most people don't have an answer because we really don't know the answer because in order to come to the answer, we have to first go back to Scripture. In order to go back to Scripture, we have to actually be willing to read it. Being in the Word of God, making it a permanent part and a primary part of our lives is the number one step of being a disciple. Now, I'm speaking post-salvation, all right? We come to faith in, in the uh, uh, saving knowledge of the, the sacrifice of Messiah Yeshua. We become believers. We go through immersion for missionists and so on. When we actually are believers, to be a disciple, we have to be in His Word. Why? Because that's where we hear His voice most of the time. It's not the only time. There are other ways that He can speak audibly into our lives. He can give us inclinations in our spirit, he can give us dreams and visions, but the primary way he speaks to us is through his word. So let's assume, just for the sake of saying, and I'm not saying it's the only four ways God can speak to us, but let's assume there's four ways God can speak to us. Through his word, through dreams and visions, through his audible voice, and through inclinations of our spirit, right? Let's assume there's four. Out of those four, the final three, dreams, visions, and inclination, I, uh, or, uh, dreams, audible voice, and inclination, I would say, best case scenario, maybe 15% of what we hear from the Lord is going to come from that. The other uh, 85%, where is it going to come from? The Word of the Lord. So if we're not in the Word of the Lord daily, if we're not digging into His Word to stoke that flame, to fan that flame so that that flame continues to burn and to billow and to rage within us, then we're not being good disciples. We're definitely not being good stewards with what the Lord has done within us because that spirit that resides within us, that fire of the Lord that resides within us, it's the same spirit that inspired the words of the Lord. It's the same spirit that inspired the scriptures to be written. So being in his word daily is a major part of being a disciple. Communing with the Lord, being in prayer daily is a major part of being a disciple. And one of the major aspects of that is to shut up and listen. We think we have to tell God and talk to God and, and keep the conversation one-sided because we might, uh, uh, you know, he, he might like lose focus if we're not one-sided. The problem is, is we've got to shut up sometimes and listen to him. That still small voice. If we're talking over it, how are we ever going to hear it? But we have to be in communion with the Lord. We have to constantly be in communion with him. I ride a motorcycle and when I'm on my bike, 90% of the time I'm in prayer. Part of it's because there are idiots all around me and I just don't want to die. Uh, but the other part is it's just a really great time. You're by yourself. There's, you got nothing better to do, right? So, you know, it's an awesome time to be in prayer just to focus on, on uh, uh, listening to the, the still small voice and, and following his leading. And you'd be surprised how many times the Lord gives me uh, ideas for messages or uh, teachings that, that are coming up or what have you while I'm on the bike just got nothing better. I don't have a radio on my bike. I typically don't have earphones in. I'm just riding down the road listening to the Lord speak. 
And it's awesome to hear, his vo- to, to hear his voice, to hear him speak, and to move in our lives in that way. But we've got to train ourselves to actually heed his voice, to hear his voice, to listen to that still, small voice. We've got to train ourselves by being in communion with him. Part of being a disciple is, is that, that word that none of us like, discipline. As a two-sided word. It's having discipline to do something regularly, to make it a part of our lives, and it's recognizing when we're getting disciplined for not being disciplined. <laughs> you know, every once in a while, the Lord's going to walk up and kick us in the tail to get our attention. Um, and I promise you, you don't want those situations because it's usually you're already too far outside of His will, and now you've got to trudge back through the sludge to get back where He wants you to be. Another part of being a disciple as we look through the scriptures, what is it we see over and over and over again that the true followers of the Lord did? Moses, when Israel sinned. Jeremiah and Isaiah, when Israel sinned. All of the prophets throughout scripture. We look at uh, Stephen as he was preparing to be stoned and so on and so forth. What is it they continually did? They interceded on behalf of others. They prayed on behalf of others. They shared their lives with others in a way that it impacted them for the kingdom of the Lord. They made sure that others saw the truth of Messiah in their lives. It's important for us as believers, as disciples, and we talked about this during the, the uh, Aruach Encounter study that we just finished. We talked about this over and over and over again, that we are useless to the kingdom of God, and I, I say that intentionally. We are useless to the kingdom of God if we are not going to let His Spirit be what leads every aspect of our lives. When people see us, they don't need to hear our mouths first. They need to see the Lord in our lives first. And how do they see the Lord in our lives? It's when His Spirit, when that fire of the Lord is all-consuming. They need to see that presence. See, Israel, it was interesting as we look at the tabernacle. Israel saw the presence of the Lord descend upon the Ark of the Covenant. The whole nation saw it. They witnessed this occur at the end of Exodus. The whole nation witnessed the fire of the Lord come forth on the tabernacle, on the, the ark and the, ta- the altar and the tabernacle. The whole nation witnessed this. The whole nation witnessed every day because it, the altar was in a place that everybody could go in. The, the outer courts, the courts of praise, everybody could go in and see what was going on in there. Every day the nation got to witness the priesthood constantly stoking that fire constantly adding more wood, constantly dedicating their lives to taking care of it, to making sure that it was up to par, that it was constantly burning. They got to see this, and in their own lives, it was an example of servitude to the Lord. It was an example of being a disciple to the Lord. It was an example of being a kedoshim, a holy one. It was an example of being a zedahim, a righteous one, to stoke that fire within our own lives. If you go back to the Hebrew, and it's one of the most uh, impressive things, if we go back to the Hebrew in, in Leviticus 9, verse 24, the Hebrew says, Esh mil Adonai, the fire from the face of God. The fire from the face of God. So when it says in verse 24, fire came from the presence of Adonai, the Hebrew is Esh mil Adonai, the fire from the face of the Lord. In verse 2 of, uh, of, of uh, the, the same chapter, it says uh, that the, the phrase in this passage is, offer it before Adonai. Um, in Hebrew, it says, which literally means that they are to offer this, uh, this uh, 
offering to the Lord, they're to offer it before the face of Adonai, that fire that came forth that comes from the face. It's a representation of the face of the Lord. And it's important that as they make this offering that they do so recognizing they are doing so before the very presence of the Lord, the very face of the Lord. Uh, and, I mean, it's a powerful image the, that this fire came forth from his presence, from his face. Um, as Israel traveled, as I mentioned before, as Israel traveled, the fire had to keep going. And so what we see uh, in this is that there's, there's three kind of aspects of our life that it's important for us to make sure that that fire is always going. First is uh, on Shabbat, and this comes from some of the writings of the sages. First is on Shabbat, uh, on the day of rest where we are literally to rest in his presence. Um, during the most sacred times, we are to take care to guard the fire of the Ruach within us. Part of that is taking time to rest in his presence, taking time to rest on the Shabbat, to gather together in holy convocation on Shabbat. Yeshua said, where two or three are gathered together, there I will be also. Where more of us are gathered together, there's even more of his presence because we come together. And, and when we're worshiping in a group, we see that power come together, that power of the presence of the Lord. During times of ritual impurity, notice that fire had to be going even when the priests might be ritually impure. Maybe they came across a dead person when they weren't supposed to. Maybe they were part of the ones that had to take the, the ashes out uh, and became unclean. But that fire had to constantly keep going. So even during times when we think we are unworthy, we must guard the fire of the Ruach within us. We must guard the fire of the Spirit within us. Even at those moments where we feel like, look, we've just messed up too much this week. You know, I've, I've fallen short of the glory. I've, I, I made this mistake or I made that mistake or this person did this to me or that person did that to me. Even when we are at our lowest, it's of the utmost importance that we guard and stoke that fire of the Lord because the only way we can come back from that is in the presence and the fire of the Lord. During travels, when we're out and about, when, we're, when we are moving through our daily lives, interacting with us, uh, interacting with others and coming into contact with the outside world, we must guard the fire, the ruach within us. I would say this one's probably one of the most important aspects because it's when we're outside, when we're in the world, that the enemy wants to attack and he wants to draw us away and he wants to bring us down and he wants to diminish what the Lord has done with us or he wants to accuse us of that last one that we're, we're ritually impure for whatever reason. He wants to accuse us of sin in our lives or accuse us of this or remind us of mistakes that we made and we have to at this point be of the utmost care to guard and to fan that flame within us. In other words, there is not a moment in our lives that we should not be constantly fanning that flame that fire that is within us, that we should constantly be acting to make sure that the presence of the Lord is moving powerfully and mightily in our, in our lives and our hearts. See, what's interesting is as we look at this, there was an individual or a group of individuals, the priesthood, who were responsible for this fire. And this fire came forth from the presence of the Lord, and they were responsible to make sure it continually burned no matter what. But one of the unique things about the Brecherashah, the new covenant that we live in, the, 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 the salvation that we live in is that we serve a high priest that's even greater. A high priest that makes a sacrifice once for all. He's already poured out the blood on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies in heaven. And now the fire that came forth from the presence of the Lord, the fire that came out and consumed the offering, the fire of the presence of the Lord that had to continually be burning on the altar, the fire of the presence of the Lord that should be within us, that fire, that presence, that sense is the Lord himself. It's the presence of Yeshua in our lives. 
It's the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, the Shekhinah, the divine glory of the Lord that's within us. So now we're not just igniting a fire that we see that's right there in front of us, but instead it's a part of who we are. And just as that fire in the tabernacle, the fire in the Mishkan, came forth from the presence of the Lord, came forth from the face of the Lord, where do you think the fire in our lives came from? We get lazy in our faith. We get really lazy in our faith. We don't want to put the time and the effort into walking a walk. We, we're perfectly fine at admitting that we're believers. We're perfectly fine in rejoicing in the grace and mercy of the Lord. But the body of Messiah today, we don't want to take responsibility for the fact that we actually have to live a righteous and holy life. We have to strive to honor Him. So it's not just keeping kosher and keeping Shabbat and honoring the feast and festivals and, and so on and so forth. It's not all of these things that make us righteous and holy by themselves. As a matter of fact, they don't do anything for us short of the grace and mercy of Messiah Yeshua's sacrifice and atonement because we can't do any of those short of the grace and mercy, the sacrifice of Yeshua. What makes us righteous and holy is His presence in our lives. And the reason that we should be doing these things, the reason we should be in His Word all the time, the reason we should be in prayer all the time, the reason we should be in worship all the time, the reason we should be in communion with the Lord all the time, the reason we should be uh, avoiding our eyes from sinful things of this world, the reason we should be avoiding our ears from sinful things of this world, the reason we should be avoiding our mouths, our tongues, our hearts, and every other aspect of our lives from sinful things of this world is because we are righteous and holy and there is a holy fire burning within us, a fire of the presence of the Lord that cannot be in the midst of sin, and that presence is now a part of our lives, not for our sakes, but so that the world around us will see and want what we have. But if we're not stoking that fire, if we're not constantly adding wood to that fire, if we're not constantly digging into the presence of the Lord, then we're wasting the fire of the Lord in our lives. We're wasting the salvation, the grace and the mercy that the Lord has given us. We're called to change this world. And I don't mean in the sense of all the, you know, touchy-filly, liberal, whatever mindset that wants to say we need to leave the world better than the way we came. Uh, and I'm not talking like, you know, go hug trees and uh, stop drilling for oil and whatever. And you know, that's all a whole different discussion. What I'm talking about is when we leave this world, we need to make sure that there was more fruit planted in this world because of us than there was what we took from this world. Seeds were planted in our lives. It blossomed, it groomed. The Lord cultivated it in our hearts and our lives, and it's our job to continue to make sure that that cultivation goes. Not for our sake, but that there be other fruit that comes forth. There be other lives changed. And as we said earlier, we live in days now where it's of the utmost importance that we give the Lord our all, that we make sure there is fruit being bared from our lives, that we make sure that there are other lives being touched and changed, that we make sure that when Messiah comes back and we make our way through the, the eternal judgment and we hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, and we end up in the kingdom of God for all eternity, that we're not there alone. Because we have all been called to make disciples of all men. We've all been called to stoke that flame in our lives so that that flame ignites a flame in others. 
That fire from the face of the Lord, it's a part of our lives, and that fire from the face of the Lord wants to ignite in other people's lives too. But we've got to make sure it's still burning in ours. So the question I have for you is, can you honestly say day in and day out that you put the time and effort into stoking the fire of the Lord in your life? And if the answer is no, or if you're uncertain, today's the day to change that. Today's the day to make it a point that from this moment forward, you're going to make sure that every day you're stoking that fire. Every day you're putting fresh wood on that fire. Every day that fire is raging. Because the enemy's at the door and he's knocking. And he wants to destroy what the Lord has done in your life. The only way he can is if you're not truly buried in the bosom of the Lord. If that fire is not fully consuming your life, the enemy is going to have access to you. And it'll be your fault because you let him there. As believers, we are the laziest group of people in the world. The laziest. That's why people around us think it's the government's responsibility to take care of the sick, the orphan, the needy, the widowed, and so on and so forth because we refuse to do what the Lord's called us to do. The reason we refuse to do what the Lord's called us to do is because we refuse to actually walk in the Lord. But it's time that that changes. If we want to see that fire, that revival, if we want to see the presence of the Lord move in our lives, in our midst, in our congregations like He wants to do, we have to let that fire rage. We have to let it rage. Amen? Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We love you and we adore you. We thank you for being a gracious and loving God, for being an awesome God. Father, we thank you for being merciful and for drawing us back into your presence even when we walk away from you, for restoring us for redeeming us, for loving us. We thank you that that fire from the face of the Lord is a very real part of our lives. And we ask you, God, to encourage us and to uh, build up within us a desire to continue to build that fire, to make sure that it never goes out, to make sure that it is never snuffed out, to make sure that it's impacting those around us. In the name of Yeshua, Messiah, we pray. Everyone says, Amen. Amen.